0: Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS. Technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting, and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at Q2 updates. So we're on to quarter two or half one if you're reporting on halves. And I'm very lucky to be joined by our technical leaders, Tony DeBell, Larry Dodak and Sandra Thompson. So welcome all to the studio. For our listeners, if you're thinking what's happened to Ruth's voice, I've got a summer cold. I'm feeling a bit sorry for myself, so if I'm not quite as jovial as usual, that's why. (laughs) Tony's looking grumpy at me. Come on, Ruth, get on with it. Right, (laughs) let's start. So Tony, I'm going to start with you. For those people reporting under IS34, any things they should be watching out for?
1: Yeah, so I I guess we've obviously got two significant new standards that apply for the first time this year, IFRS 9 and IFRS 15. And so we're going to have some companies that will be reporting under those standards for the first time at the 30th of June. There will also be some companies that, uh, if they report quarterly, will be reporting for the second time. Companies that are reporting for the first time need to bear in mind the, the requirements of IAS 34, which is to tell the story about the transition to the new standard so to provide enough information that explains the nature and the effect of the change in accounting policy and they also need to remember that both IFRS 15 and IFRS 9 introduced some mandatory additional disclosures into IS 34 and those disclosures will be uh, necessary in the um, half-year interim report. Companies that are reporting for the second time would have provided a lot of information about uh, transition to the new standards uh, in their first quarter. And they may be thinking, well, well, do I need to repeat all of that stuff in the second quarter? Is there a way that I could perhaps cross-reference for some of the information that was provided in a transition document or was provided uh, in my first quarter report? Uh, Companies that are thinking about it need to remember that the interim report needs to stand on its own. IS-34 is clear that an interim report updates the annual financial statements, doesn't update the previous quarter, and so taking that together with the fact it has to stand on its own, it's still necessary to explain the nature and effect of the change in accounting policy. Obviously, it's still necessary to give all of the mandatory additional disclosures, and it will be necessary to update any quantitative disclosures. You can understand that some people might think that repeating all of the, let's say, all the new accounting policies might not add any value. And I think if there is a company that has that in mind, it's very important to consider the views of the local regulator and whether the local regulator would find that acceptable.
0: Okay, so no shortcuts, I think is what I heard there in summary. Also, just then moving into uh, some of the other uh, hot topics we've seen, could you give us an update on hyperinflation?
1: Yes, so the the issue around hyperinflation at the moment is is Argentina. So inflation in Argentina has been high for a while now, Uh, although until recently inflation was high, but the um, cumulative three-year inflation was actually showing a downward trend. That reversed during the first half of 2018, and with recent increases in inflation, I think pretty much all of the local inflation indices now show that cumulative three-year inflation exceeds 100%. Against that background, judgments required to determine when um, IS29, um, reporting in hyperinflationary economies, um, should be applied. And making that judgment, it's important to take into account that IS29 suggests or says that it's preferable that all companies in the economy apply IS29 at the same time. And for taking that into account, um, in our view, companies are not required to apply IS29. Two periods ending on the 30th of June. However, companies that have the Argentine peso as the functional currency, I think, should expect to apply IS29 in the second half of 2018. And it's important to remember that when IS29 is applied, it's applied as if the economy had always been hyperinflationary. So, comparatives get restated, and um, assets and, or uh, non monetary assets and liabilities are restated from the date that they were first acquired or recognised. Wow, okay, so that could be a big job for groups. Third of quarter gone. or for second half and yeah. annual financial reporting in 2018.
0: Wow, okay, something big to watch out for there. Also, on a similar topic, so in 21, yeah. I know we're also going to think a little bit about what's going on at the IFRIC. You had a
1: specific issue on... Or... We did. Exchange. So this is about long-term lack of exchangeability. And the the question that we had at the Interpretations Committee focused on a particular set of circumstances. This is the set of circumstances that apply in Venezuela. Venezuela is also hyperinflationary. And the question that the committee looked at was a situation in which access to foreign exchange is governed by an official mechanism. But an entity is in the position where it has... There's a, there's a long-term lack of, lack of exchangeability, and the entity just has not been able to access foreign currency using the official mechanism at the official rate. And so the question is, for a parent company with a foreign operation in Venezuela, um, if it is, has in effect not been able to access foreign currency at the official rate, what rate should it use to translate? The financial statements of its foreign operation and so the committee considered the background and said well actually in this very narrow set of circumstances entities should assess whether the official rate meets the definition of a spot rate in IAS 21. The implication is that you carry out the assessment and if the uh, official rate does not meet the definition of the spot rate then it will be necessary to estimate a spot rate to translate the financial statements of the foreign operation. So that conclusion has been issued as an agenda decision, be open for comment. Anybody who is interested, I would encourage them to have a look at the agenda decision and comment. At the same time, the committee reminded people of the importance of disclosure to explain the judgment that's been made about the exchange rate and the impact on the financial statements and the committee also suggested that the, the staff at the IASB think about whether or not there is anything that could be done to address this question. So a change in the standard can't happen now to address the situation in Venezuela specifically, but question is, could there be a change that would address this situation when it comes up in the future?
0: Yeah, and I think we saw um, an ESMA enforcement decision around this particular point as well, and they emphasise the importance of disclosure, Yeah, how you yeah. come up with your spot rate. So disclosure, key thing there. Any other IFRIC activity you want to share with us?
1: We had a meeting in June, talked about a lot of things besides um, long-term lack of exchangeability. But there's maybe two things that, that I'll mention on this podcast, I think. Firstly, we had a question about very short-term borrowing and whether a very short-term borrowing that is used as part of an entity's cash management can be classified as a cash equivalent. So the committee looked at IS seven and we said, well, uh, the only borrowing that can be classified as a cash equivalent is a bank overdraft that is repayable on demand and is an integral part of the entity's cash management processes. And so we thought, well, something that has a maturity, even if it's very short, even if it's only a few days or a few weeks is not repayable on demand. And if it is a borrowing with a maturity, it can't really fluctuate from being positive to negative, which sort of suggests it's not an integral part of cash management. And so the committee's conclusion, which was issued as an agenda decision in June, is that very short-term borrowings, if they're not bank overdrafts that that comply with the requirements in IAS 7, should not be classified as cash equivalents. And I guess the message there is if there are... Uh, companies that have been classifying such borrowings in cash equivalents, they ought to think about their accounting policy. The second thing I'll mention is just an ongoing discussion. So there won't be any change in standards soon, but this might be relevant to companies that are adopting the new leasing standard IFRS 16 this year. So at the moment, um, the income taxes standard, uh, IS-12, does not address situation in which an asset and a liability are recognised in the same transaction and there is a temporary difference on the asset and the liability. As a result, there's diversity in practice in the way deferred taxes are applied to what are finance leases today. We continue to talk about this. What the committee decided to do was to recommend to the IASB that the IASB propose a limited scope amendment to IAS-12. And that limited scope amendment would propose that the initial recognition exception no longer applies to transactions in which a taxable temporary difference and a deductible temporary difference are recognised in the same transaction. So it's a narrowing of the initial recognition exception, it won't remove it, it will simply narrow it to say it doesn't apply to transactions in which a deductible temporary difference and a taxable temporary difference are recognised. The implications of that are that companies may end up recognising a right of use asset and a lease liability and a deferred tax liability and a deferred tax asset on those entries when leases are recognised. Now, as I said, this is, uh, this is a recommendation to the ISB, the ISB has not done anything, so we won't have a change in standards in the immediate future. However, I think it's one for, for companies to be aware of as they adopt IFRS 16 because they may be deciding how to account for the deferred tax consequences of leases. So it will be worth being aware of of where the committee and where the IASB is going with this as they get on with adopting IFRS 16.
0: Okay, so one for everybody to watch as you're transitioning to IFRS 16. Perfect, thank you, Tony. Okay, so over to you, Larry. Is there any other things going on at the IFRIC that you'd like to talk to us about today?
2: Yeah, thanks, Ruth. Actually, IFRIC received two requests on the application of IS-23 dealing with borrowing costs. The first related to a fact pattern where an entity constructs a qualifying asset. And partway through the construction, the entity borrows funds generally. And the entity incurs expenditures for the qualifying asset both before and after the borrowing. And the question was, what what expenditures should be included for purposes of capitalization of interest? And the effort concluded two things. One, that the entity does not begin capitalizing borrowing costs before it's actually incurred. And the other is that it would consider all eligible expenditures. Said another way, you do not disregard eligible expenditures incurred before the general borrowing. The second request related to a fact pattern where an entity acquires land and constructs building on, on top of that land. And the entity borrows funds to buy the land and do the construction. And the question was, when to cease capitalizing borrowing costs on the land expenditures. Said another way, when is the land ready for its intended use? I kind of think of this as, do you consider the land and building as one unit of account or two? Well, IFRA concluded that if the land is not capable of being used uh, while construction of the building takes place, then it really should look at it as one unit of account. Said another way, the land's not ready until the land and building is ready for its intended use.
0: Okay, brilliant. Always comes down to unit account issues, doesn't it, <laughs> in accounting. <laughs> Something else that's been rumbling on, it feels like for years, but I don't think it, it has been years exactly, but is this discussion around proceeds of testing. Could you give us a bit of an update on that project?
2: Yeah, absolutely. This was one of the items that was discussed at the last IFRIC meeting, where the staff came to IFRIC seeking direction on this current project. And just as a reminder, this was an ED that was issued back in June of last year, And the comment period ended in October, where they received approximately 80 to 85 comment letters on it. And many of the respondents expressed concern on a number of items. You know, first of all, the the exposure draft was clear on what to do with proceeds, but it didn't tell you exactly what to deal with cost allocation. There was no guidance on how to deal with that in terms of what costs would actually be period costs, what costs would be inventoriable? what cash, costs should be capitalized as part of the fixed of the pp and it didn't deal with really the heart of the issue, which is when is an asset really ready for its intended use. So when this issue was discussed at, at the IFRIC meeting, while the majority of the IFRIC members supported the board going ahead with the project, they did suggest that the staff should consider some of these very specific issues that were raised in the common letter process. Bottom line, Stay tuned, more to come.
0: Okay, perfect. So we've got something to talk about again in Q3, maybe even Q4. <laughs> okay, now we're going to come on to Sandra in a second. She's going to give us a, a, a bit of a, a, I suppose, current experiences on the on the application of IFRS 9. One of the things we've talked about before is something I think that people miss is intergroup loans. Now, before you even get into IFRS 9, you've got to actually, are you even in the scope of IFRS 9 question? So could you give us a little bit of uh, the considerations around that?
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Ruth. I mean, the question here, the key first question is scope. And you need to ascertain whether the financing arrangement is within the scope of IFRS 9 or in the scope of IFRS 27 dealing with investments in subsidiaries. Certainly, if you have an arrangement with no written terms, no intention to repay, likely that is part of the investment in the subsidiary. But if you have a loan at commercial terms from a parent to a sub, while it may not have any ramification in the consolidated financial statements, clearly in the separate financial statements, you would need to consider the requirements of IFRS 9. And obviously, there's a variety of arrangements in between that you would need to consider. The only other thing that I would mention, I I mentioned this in our webcast as well, is you also need to consider financing arrangements between an investor and an investee and whether they're in the scope of IFRS 9 or in IS 28. And one of the amendments last year clarified that long-term interest in, in associates clearly would be in the scope of IFRS 9.
0: Brilliant, thanks Larry. Okay, so over to Sandra. So Sandra and Larry obviously has just told us around first thing you need to do with intergroup loans is what standard are you in, what scope? If you are in the scope of IFRS 9,
3: what do people need to consider? Thanks, Ruth. Yeah, that's a very good question, not an easy one to answer. No. So let's start at the beginning. Um, the first thing to say, if you do have an intergroup loan in the scope of IFRS 9, then the impairment provisions do apply. There's a little bit of a myth out there that somehow there's a scope out of the mm-hmm. impairment provisions for intergroup loans. Well, I'm afraid there isn't. So if, for example, a parent has loaned an amount to a subsidiary that is in the scope of IFRS 9's impairment provisions... The next thing is, well, applying IFRS 9 to an intergroup loan is actually not easy, because IFRS 9 probably wasn't written with intergroup loans in mind. A couple of particular challenges, one is around data, because some of the data you might use for an external loan, you probably won't have for an intergroup loan, so top tip there is don't leave it too late, think about it early on. The other is just to be aware this is not only an accounting exercise. Some people say, well, all in them, it's on consolidation, yeah care. There can be impacts on distributable profits, for example, if you book an impairment provision when you didn't have one under IS39, which is reasonably likely, and needed on tax. So just look out for those other implications early on. In terms of actually applying IFRS 9, probably the most common question I get is, well, it's an intergroup loan, won't it be immaterial? Yeah. And there are a couple of thought processes behind that. One is that if the subsidiary, in my example, were to get into financial difficulties, surely the parent would just lend them more money or pump more yeah, equity I've heard that in. Lot. Yeah. yeah, so therefore there wouldn't be an impairment loss. Yeah. I'm afraid that doesn't fly under IFRS 9. Under IFRS 9, you look at the contractual terms, so if the, you go with what's in the, the loan contract between the parent and the subsidiary, and you can't look at things outside of the contractual terms. So I'm afraid that isn't a reason for saying I don't need to worry about IFRS 9. However, they, there may be some intragroup loans for which the amount is immaterial. Not all. We we recommend a kind of almost a decision tree. We've got it in our, our in depth. Yeah. But I'll just run through high level. So the first thing we say is, well, think about is your intergroup loan repayable on demand? If it is, and there are a number of intergroup loans that are, then under IFRS nine, you go with the contractual terms. So you have to say, well, what would happen if the parent demanded repayment at the balance sheet date? That might not be very likely, but that's the question you need to ask. If the subsidiary could repay in full, for example, the subsidiary has a pile of cash and cash equivalents or some very liquid assets, then you probably will have an immaterial impairment loss because the parent could get all Mm -hmm. its money back. In a perhaps more likely situation where the subsidiary can't immediately repay in full, you have to say, well, what would the parent do? most likely scenario may be that the parent would look for repayment over time as the subsidiary trades and generates cash flows. And then you're looking, well, how much cash flow could the subsidiary generate? You're probably looking at a number of different scenarios because IFRS 9 says you've got to look at multiple forward-looking scenarios. And, of course, the further out you go, the more likely is that at least one of those scenarios would be a loss. So there probably would be some impairment to to book in that instance. If the loan's not repayable on demand, where do you go next? We would say think about the low credit risk exemption. So if you can demonstrate your intragroup loan has low credit risk, that's that the borrower has a strong capacity to repay, then you measure a 12-month expected loss under IFRS 9, and that's a smaller number than lifetime loss, and it's probably easier to calculate. And in particular, there's a shortcut you can do to see if that's material. So you can say, well, let's suppose I'm 12-month expected loss... In a low credit risk loan the standard tells you that's about investment grade let's look at the highest probability of default associated with investment grades so i think like the worst investment grade you can have and let's assume let's apply that probability of default and assume that the parent recovers nothing at all so the entire amount of the loan is wiped out if i multiply that out it doesn't give me a material number yeah. and if the answer's no then you can stop because your actual ECL will be smaller than that. Worst case scenario. It's your worst case, Yeah. 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 If that is a material number, then you have to do some more work to work out the actual probability of default, so the actual likelihood that the subsidiary won't be able to repay and the actual loss if the subsidiary did default. And then finally, if you can't get into low credit risk exemption, the next question to ask is, has there been a significant increase in credit risk since the amount was first lent, or has this loan got less than 12 months to run? If so, again, you're in 12-month expected loss. And you can do a similar shortcut. You can say, well, what's the likelihood of default? Let's assume the parent loses everything. If if that gives you an immaterial number, you can stop there. But again, if it doesn't, you're going to have to do a longer haul calculation. And, of course, you can have loans that are none of those. They're not repayable on demand. They're not low credit risk. There has been a significant increase in credit risk. And then you need to do your full-length lifetime ECL calculation. So, and I say it's tricky for interlude loans so don't leave it too late
0: yeah and you mentioned there we have got in depth on um, available on pwc.com and it's really good it's got this flowchart chart you can work through and it, it
3: sends you off into different areas, depending on what your loan is. Yeah. So I thoroughly recommend that And people. also, we have a YouTube video, I know, YouTube I think I, I, yeah. I kind of sneaked
0: onto it. You can
3: watch Ruth and I go through the flowchart in a bit more detail if
0: you'd like to. <laughs> they let me in front of the camera for once. <laughs> okay, perfect. So that's one of the big things with IFRS 9. Anything else uh, that you've seen in the first six months of IFRS 9 being
3: out? Yeah, one thing, we've been a lot of people asking, particularly with banks, as to what are our early experiences of IFRS 9? What's everyone else doing? What does good disclosure look like? So what we've done, we've done another YouTube video, this one with Mark and I, I'm looking at some the early experiences, we've looked at 25 banks across Europe and what actually have they reported, and in particular, what good disclosures have we seen? Now, I'm not going to cover that now, we've only got 20 minutes, but if that's of interest to you, look at that YouTube video, Demystifying IFRS9 for Banks... It's the latest one out. Hopefully, you'll find it quite easily. Brilliant.
0: Thank you. Okay, so a little bit more material for us to have a look at. So, last topic of the podcast, going a little bit onto other topics in your area. Any other hot topics you want to tell people about for Q2?
3: Yeah, definitely. There's one, and this is nothing to do with new standards. (laughs) This is to do with an external development, which is the replacement of eyeballs. So, following the financial crisis, eyeballs, things like LIBOR, Euribor, U.S. dollar LIBOR, the the Swiss and and Japanese equivalents, are in the process of being phased out and replaced with other near risk-free benchmark rates. And there are a number of accounting questions that arise from this. Now, the first point I should make is this is not just banks, it is banks, but it's also corporates. A lot of corporates will have floating rate borrowings linked to LIBOR, or they'll have hedged with interest rate swaps that have a LIBOR leg. So don't switch off if you're not a bank. (laughs) There are a number of accounting questions, as I highlighted. Now, probably the most time-critical, the most urgent are a couple. The first is to do with cash flow hedge accounting. So let's take an example. A company's issued a floating rate borrowing, pays LIBOR plus 2%, and they've hedged it with an interest rate swap. Or let's suppose our company's about to do that, contemplating that LIBOR-based borrowing. Now, obviously, let's suppose it's a five-year borrowing, so that goes to 2023. The LIBOR it's linked to may well not exist yep. in 2023. So the question is, what does that do for your hedge accounting? Previously, the company might have designated the hedge risk as LIBOR. So changes in the variable LIBOR link cash flows or changes in cash flows attributable to LIBOR. Our recommendation for new hedges is think a bit more broadly because LIBOR might not exist. So designate your hedge instead in terms of something like LIBOR and its successor benchmark rate. So if you like, future-proof your hedge documentation such that when LIBOR no longer exists, your hedge still works under the documentation. The second point is to actually think about what your contracts say, because there are a variety of things that could be the case. So some contracts have nothing in them at all to say what happens when LIBOR ceases to exist. Some of them have provisions that provide for the contracts to terminate. Some will provide for a replacement rate, either if LIBOR ceases to exist but not in the case that libel's still there but very illiquid, or indeed in the case where libel's illiquid. So work out what contracts you've got. If would like, do an inventory. And in particular, try and avoid mismatches. So my example of a libel-based loan with an interest rate swap, what you don't want to happen is you get to LIBOR being replaced, say, 2021, and your loan terminates and your swap doesn't. So to the extent you can, again, future-proof your new terms and conditions so you don't get unfortunate mismatches. That's immediate. Yeah. Longer term, there are going to be some other accounting questions. So when LIBOR actually ceases to exist, what is the accounting then? Is that just replacing one floating rate with another? Is it modification? That's one we're going to have to think about, but not yet. And simply when it comes to measuring fair value, a lot of fair value methodologies incorporate LIBOR, yeah. either in the cash flows or the discount rates. There's going to have to be some changes to fair value methodologies. So Watch this space, probably too soon to be seriously thinking about those, but watch this space. And just to note that the ISB is aware that these issues are there. They've kicked off a research project really to monitor developments and see if they need to act and therefore to be standing ready to act quickly if they need to. So we may see some activity from the ISB. We'll wait and see how things pan out.
0: Brilliant. So, your advice, I think, for listeners at the moment is effectively be proactive. If you're forming any documentation or looking at loan agreements, try and future proof those. And then we'll keep people updated on the longer term about what the other accounting impacts are going to be.
3: Yeah, very much so. We could
0: have 20 minutes just on that, I think. Oh, we may want to. We're already running over. We've now come to the end of our podcast on our quarterly update. So, a big thank you to Sandra, Tony, and Larry for joining us and giving us those great insights. A little note from us at PwC IFRS Talks we're now obviously entering summer holiday season, and therefore, we're going to have to take a little bit of a break for August. We're not going to launch any podcasts, but we will be back with you on the 7th of September. Uh, So, please don't forget us. I've been your host, Ruth Preedy. Happy Accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by Price Waterhouse Coopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes
3: and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.